out there in web developer and design land hello you are listening what the hell no yeah, see, you, know, you just you screwed up my rhythm you see what you did there you broke up hi everybody that I was working so hard on this is the drunken ux podcast you're listening to episode number 22 uh 22 it's october it's the end of october when you're listening to this maybe it's november i don't know i'm not your boss um <laughs> We're going to be talking about lessons learned from the healthcare.gov launch way, way back in the way back. Remember when that was the things that we had to worry about? Completely. Yeah. <laughs> this episode of the Drunken UX podcast is brought to you by our friends at New Cloud. You can check them out at newcloud.com slash drunken UX. I am one of your hosts. I am Michael Feenan, and with me on the other microphone is Aaron Hill. Aaron, Hello. tell the people hi again. Hi, everybody. See, we got him a nice microphone, and now he thinks he's a voice actor, so... <laughs> it's, he's getting all antsy in his pantsies. You should come and tell us about our voice acting on the social media platforms. Twitter.com, Facebook.com, slash DrunkenUX. Also, connect with us on Slack, uh, DrunkenUX.com, slash Slack, and on Instagram, where... I still gotta take a picture of my drink. Uh, we're Instagram.com slash, I think, Drunken UX Podcast still, right? That, that is what it is still. Um, and uh, this week, I'm keeping it pretty simple. I'm just drinking myself uh, an Arizona sweet tea and some Tito's. Nice. I've got... It's simple. I was going to do DiSerrano and Sprite, but my kids drank all my Sprite. So I've got... I, I, <laughs> I mean, that's better than them drinking all the DiSerrano, right? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> There are two ways that can go. So. That's true. So I did. Uh, I I made some Soda Stream seltzer, and then I did some Rosa's lime juice in a shot of Di Serrano. It's actually not bad. Um, I discovered, by the way, uh, that what was it? Uh, Kahlua and root beer are a surprisingly good combination. I'll just take your word for that. Not not like the commercial A and W Barks kind of root beer, but like the IBC kind of root beer where it's got like actual like sarsaparilla in it and everything uh it the the vanilla of the kalua really complements the the vanillins in the root beer just give it a shot if you can sometime yeah, yeah. we'll see yeah i'm not gonna make any promises on that <laughs> <laughs> uh let's see we've talked about our sponsor we've talked about social media we've talked about our drinks and so that means we only got one thing left to do and that's to get into the show and i i know uh it's it's october it's the end of october um i just uh tootled my skinny butt back from california we mm-hmm. were or where i was at uh high ed web uh 2018 that's nice. the Higher Ed Web Conference of Higher Ed in <laughs> Conference Land. I don't know. It's uh, it was in Sacramento. Um, it's basically you know seven hundred of the funnest, smartest people who build websites for uh, universities and and colleges and things like that. And for for those of you that don't know, High Ed Web is like the conference if you're a higher ed web professional. It's, I mean, in, in my opinion, it's also one of the best web conferences, mm-hmm. like just in general. While, of course, their use cases and presentations are certainly going to have a 
university bend to them. They run like six tracks mm-hmm. uh, c- concurrently, so you can you know each each hour you can change the room you're in and go watch a different subject. Um, but I mean the the quality of the content is super high. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got people working on you know really complex subjects and and projects and ch- as I say chores, but um, <laughs> that you know the, the stuff that you can learn there is just so diverse and useful um and it it applies cuz everybody's you know going to work on some of these things at some point even yeah. if they're not in higher ed so right the challenges that we face in higher ed digital media is there're very a lot of overlap to other industries yeah i haven't been to the proper high ed web conference but i've been to i think three regionals and they were all really awesome um similar crowd as you know um yeah. But uh, small, like fewer tracks and shorter, and less extravagant. <laughs> Fun people too. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that also needs to be said because these are folks that they, you know, it's it's one of those work hard, play harder mm-hmm. sort of things. Like where when you're at this conference, you know, you can v- plan on getting lots of really good food and having lots of fun. If you, uh, for those of us, those of you who have been with us for a while, um, if you remember back to the Jeff Stevens episode when we talked with him from, uh, he's UFL, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's the one that, uh, invented karaoke plane and that was at a high ed web conference, I believe. Uh, so it's that, that kind of crowd. Which has now grown into an actual sponsored event. I saw, I saw an Instagram video of Paul Gilzow from our build process one dancing at karaoke plane and man that boy that boy can dance he's yeah he's got some groove to it <laughs> he does <laughs> and he's not afraid to show it he is not <laughs> what's on your plate conference wise i just got back uh from the national diaper bank network conference it's the annual conference for diaper banks which are kind of like food banks but for like sanitary supplies for adults and children um we pitched our product we we went into production with Diaperbase. Uh, been project lead on that for about three years, and we pitched it, and we got twenty three diaper banks sign up already. So, uh, my life just suddenly got very interesting. <laughs> what what was your goal for the signups? Uh, I was hoping for like ten, so like I exceeded my my expectations and hopes on that. Um, there's two hundred and fifteen total diaper banks in the country. Not all of them are represented at the conference, um, and I, but I I think that twenty three is a good start, and assuming that their experience goes well, they'll certainly tell other ones, and we can pick up more. I mean, so you basically opened and grabbed ten percent of the market, yeah, like yes, overnight, yes. <laughs> so yeah. that's that by itself. I mean, that's that speaks volumes, probably. Yeah, having a product that's free uh, helps a lot. <laughs> So, anyways, it was great. Uh, it went awesome. I literally just got back today. So, um, hopefully, uh, when this airs, uh, we'll be preparing to actually have people start using it. Yeah, that's great. I'm still looking at uh, maybe going to WordCamp US. Where is I'm that? This to, I believe it is in uh, Nashville, isn't it? Okay. Then, then I think they switch to St. Louis next year. If my memory is fresh on that, but it's 
it's something, you know, with as much WordPress work as I'm doing lately, it's something that I think would be incredibly useful. I think mm -hmm. doing it this year after the launch of Gutenberg is going to be interesting. We'll mm -hmm. use that word. <laughs> and it's cheap. I mean, it's it's a very affordable little conference. And we, we were talking about this to start off with because, I mean, this is, for me, and but my experience is maybe a little different from other folks, but, you know, I don't have access to a large pool of people in my area in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, brain power and just camaraderie and, and all that. So conferences give me a chance to get out and get with like-minded people, mm -hmm. talk about these challenges and problems and, and struggles and things and or find solutions. You know, I can sit down this dockerized WordPress stuff that I'm working on right now. It's, it gives me a chance to talk to somebody else who's doing that and say, cool. you know, is is the way I'm doing it the way you would do it? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, am I missing something obvious or making a mistake that's going to come back and bite me? And you get that, you, you can have that personal feedback cycle that I think is really, you know, always important to have that professional networking component. And that's true you know, it doesn't matter what your job is. I think that that's an important thing for people to to do professionally. Definitely. Definitely. And you can learn a lot. I mean, there's is th these conferences happen for a reason. So does does Chris Weekman uh, go to every Word Campus or Word Camp US or um, yeah? I I don't know. Okay. Um, I, I I think he's going this year, but I I don't know if he has gone every year. I saw pictures of him on Instagram at um, WP Camp UT. Yeah, he's like doing a keynote over in yeah. Europe. Wow, it's crazy. He was also one of our previous guests. When, so, when so, you uh, know humble, famous humble people. Brag. <laughs> <laughs> Swing by uh, our show notes over drunkenux.com. Let us know what conferences either that you go to, that you want to go to, mm. you know, anything that is a goal for you. I think maybe not this year, but I think it would be really neat to go to uh, the Amazon reInvent conference. I think hmm. that would be a cool thing to do. Uh, that's something that, you know, I kind of keep an eye on and I say not this year, but maybe eventually. Uh, but let us know. What, what, do, what do you like? What do you want to go to? What Or why don't you? You know, is, it, is there... Uh, you know, is it hard to pay for? Does your work not let you off? I know there's a lot of stuff around that. I talked to somebody this week that was at Hyatt Web who they basically have to save up all of their professional development funds for two years so that on the third year they can afford <laughs> to go to one conference. And it's like, man, that's that's rough. You know, uh, you know I've talked with organizers before about this. It's a real, it's a, a an interesting problem because on one hand, you know, you have people who have little funds available for attending conferences or they're not employed. And so going to conferences is very, like, you know, cost prohibitive. On the other hand, you have people who do have a lot of funds. And so undercharging if you're the tickets, you're missing out on that potential opportunity. Um, so you have to decide, like, which population you're going to serve while still making sure you have enough funds for your conference. Yeah, it's, it's tough. And, you know, that was something else about Hyatt Web, that all things being equal. You know, I think it's six hundred fifty some dollars for you know three days of stuff, and I've always felt like their pricing was actually really reasonable for the amount of conference you get. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to an event apart earlier this summer, uh, and I want to say that 
the the tickets for that were something in the area of like twelve hundred dollars. Yeah. Uh, and I mean that was for two days, but it's one giant mm-hmm. session basically. Like they don't do extra tracks. They don't have you know a ton of speakers. It's just like a a lineup of speakers that just come in one at a time. Yeah. So it's it's an extreme in my eyes. It's a very expensive conference. And yeah, I, what to what you're saying, if you're freelancing or running your mm-hmm. own small business or something like that looking at some of those uh, events can i mean that can look very you know very expensive how do you get that money out of that experience at that point right. and that's that's challenging um, it was like end of an apart it was it was great uh it was a, a fun deal i learned a lot it was really cool to see guys like zeldman and, and meyer speak um but I definitely would not have paid for it myself. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it was a work-sponsored outing, so they covered that that cost for us. But uh, they were full too. I mean, there was a lot of people at it, so obviously people will pay. So I, I, mean, w- I went to RailsConf a few years ago, and that was like, I mean, if you're a Rails developer, it's an amazing conference, and you you got to go at least once. But holy crap, is it pricey? It's in the it yeah. thousands. I think it was like two thousand or something for a ticket. That wasn't including plane fare. <laughs> Or hotel stay. I would say for any of our listeners, the, I set it as a goal. The, the new year is getting ready to kick up. Find yourself one event in mm-hmm. 2019 and go to it. And that can be a one-day event, an afternoon event. Um, yeah. It could be a full-size conference. But find one thing that requires you to leave the city you're in mm-hmm. and go somewhere else. And maybe if you're in a big city, that's maybe the leave the city part isn't necessary. But... <laughs> Go find an event you haven't been to before and go check it out and just yeah. just see what it is, see what it's like, and use that opportunity. Even if you don't end up liking the content, use it as an excuse to talk to other people and make a make a new friend, make a find somebody that maybe does what you do or somebody that can uh, refer people to you. You know that's something we talk about a lot and and talked with Joel, uh, for instance, about in the episode about starting a business. Mm-hmm knowing people who can refer you stuff is huge. Yeah. Uh, and you can't do that if you aren't getting out and meeting these folks. So <laughs> even, you know, I know some folks are antisocial or whatever, and that's fine, <laughs> but take the time. Even if you go and don't interact with anyone, I, I have gone to a bunch of different conferences and I always come away with kind of my, my brain feels invigorated from all of the exposure to these all different ideas um, whether or not I agree with them is secondary because it it spurs like ideas for me that I'm thinking of while I'm watching them, um, and uh, it's it's a great way to really like refresh. And uh, if you, especially if you're feeling kind of like <laughs> with your work, <laughs> yeah. So that's the conference side of things. We're getting to the end of the year, so there's uh, you know, that scramble for people to get out and spend their money, but mm-hmm. we were one of those. I want to talk this week, this bye week. This I don't know how to refer to our show, I guess, uh, when I talk about the, the show lasts for two weeks, technically, before the next mm-hmm. one comes out. Anyway, that's a rabbit hole we don't need to go down. <laughs> Health, healthcare.gov. Health, healthcare.gov. This oh, is man. the five-year anniversary of, of the site. They launched on October 1st. 2013 Mm -hmm. most folks are at least in in web are at least familiar with the site in passing if you aren't it's the insurance exchange website that was set up to support the affordable care act Mm -hmm. and 
you know, fa famously, infamously launched and <laughs> With promptly smashed face first into a wall, basically. <laughs> um, That's being very and, charitable. <laughs> yeah, much, much to no surprise to anybody who was paying attention anyway. Uh, oh, I guess a uh, quick uh, note on this before we get into the actual topic about HealthcareGov. Um, open enrollment November 1st. If you are someone who uses the ACA for your insurance... Mark that on your calendar and don't forget. November 1st. November 1st. Okay. That's like hey. four days from now. Yeah, that's your PSA. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this has led to, you know, there, there's been a lot written on healthcare.gov, and I think that it's, an, it's a good story to sit down and look at kind of what happened, why it happened, and then, you know, what, what we can use there as web developers to kind of figure out, especially, granted, it was a huge website, and mm -hmm. many of us will not work on sites that are designed to do what it did. But yeah. there's still, I think, a lot of, you know, bite-sized nuggets of goodness that yeah. you can learn from that and apply to your own projects. The, the key complaints I remember hearing were the, the total cost was really high. And then the performance, like it, it underperformed and had outages and uh, overages on traffic. And then um, I think, weren't there some issues about like people finding it hard to use? Like if they could get access, if they could get into it, they finally got a request responded to and they're, they're using it. Wasn't it hard to use or something? Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it had usability issues. It had technical issues. Mm -hmm. uh, this, so... Just to kind of outline the, the start of this, the site was designed and built by a, a small team of federal employees that were augmented with uh, two primary firms. One was a group called CGI Federal, okay. and the other is uh, QSSI. Right. CGI Federal did most of the, you know, the design and systems integrations and setup. QSSI was responsible for a lot of the testing and fixing of things uh, but together these two organizations are the ones that tend to get all the crap thrown at them for kind of what went wrong <laughs> so to speak cgi federal is is interesting because they're not even american right i mean they're not yeah. united states they're north right, american they're, they're a canadian company okay. based out of montreal okay uh now that that isn't i mean they've worked with everybody Mm -hmm. They CGI is not a small company by any stretch of the imagination. They've worked with China. They've worked with states. They've worked with the U.S. before. And and you you're familiar. You know when when you are a company that has done work on federal contracts before, yeah. you then tend to get preferential treatment mm -hmm. for future projects at that point too because you're a known quantity. So right. there are a lot of cases where, uh, like the the uh, they can sidestep things, so right. to speak, in terms of having to put stuff out for RFPs or anything like that. Um, on, on one of the links in our show notes, I saw that they are um, continuing to still get contracts for healthcare-related websites for the U.S., even yeah. after all of this happened. <laughs> uh, that, and that's how they got started, was they had already been doing work for uh, Medicare systems. Oh, Part, part D, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they... That that contract was one hundred and thirty five million dollars. Jesus. So you know these guys were you know they're big they're a big player you know yeah. to say the least. Holy crap. Uh, 
And they had done, up to this point, uh, several state-level websites as well for healthcare exchanges. But I think the thing to note there is, of course, the state requirements were somewhat smaller. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the user base was significantly smaller. And you don't have anywhere near the same amount of systems integrations to do. Right. That you have on the federal level. So, you know, that was, while they, they had that kind of in their back pocket, it definitely wasn't representative of the work that was to come, so to speak, I think. Right. Oh, I was going to ask, do you happen to know um, what the, like, were they doing, like, Waterfall or, like, Agile or, like, what what was the project management approach for this project? Um, It appears to have been a type of waterfall that mostly used agile words <laughs> so and because some of their uh their meeting notes and stuff were released through you know the the committee process and all this uh-huh. and they referred to things like sprints and stuff like that and iterations yeah. but there's no actual indication that it was agile at all so it wasn't so they were doing like sprint planning but it was like basically just this is the current portion of the waterfall that we're riding down right <laughs> and not like like oh this is working and then those priorities have changed and we're going to adjust and adapt to it in this way and and we'll I think we'll dig into some of this in the second part as far as how you know project management can factor into success or failure mm-hmm. uh in this case obviously kind of failure but so the wall that they hit basically let's let's talk a little bit about that so this launched october 1st 2013 and promptly went down and one of the initial problems that they Mm -hmm. noted was that uh in their testing uh there's an nbc news story that we'll link to that mentions some of this that they found that under a stress test the site was failing with 1100 concurrent users um which is not very many that's that's a pretty low number as far as a big website goes um and i'll tell you right now i have stress test you know a number of web servers you throw siege at something you give it a number of users and i have cranked up some of those attacks on some of my servers and i can even get a small server to handle 1100 people so uh with you know the target audience is ostensibly the entire US population basically 1100 people is 0.00003333% of the population <laughs> I I think we we mentioned this at one point about uh woot.com in one of our past episodes mm. and the the problems they have when they sell a bag of crap and everybody mm-hmm. jumps on to try to buy the $5 bag of crap all at once and their systems go down, you know, there's this, this surge problem, right? Yeah. And that was part of the, the issues that they were, that healthcare.gov was having for users was their website by its nature is designed for surging because right. everybody is going to come on when it opens. Yeah. And like 12 minutes before the deadline, you know, that's... Right, and there there will be a steady amount in between there, but then on the outside of those those gates, 
your usage is going to probably fall, you know, off a cliff, basically. You, you know, I, I'm guessing the answer to this is probably no, but did they consider looking at the IRS website as a potential, like, case study for, or at least frame of reference? Because that has a very similar, you know, like, February to April each year, you're going to have a huge surge of tra traffic hammering your servers. So, I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, that's not something I didn't see it in any I'm, of the I'm betting the answer research, is, so. is no, but <laughs> but that's there at least. <laughs> but I mean, that's that is obviously a problem. They they estimated that you know they they were failing at 1,100 users, and the actual traffic demand was apparently something in the area of 50 to 60 thousand concurrent what? users. What really? So yeah, I mean, we're talking. It could not even handle barely fractional uh, amounts of traffic for what they got. Yeah, 1,100 is 2% of 50K. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit. That, I mean, that's, you know, yeah, if you, if you can't serve people, obviously that's a huge issue. It right. also led to latency problems because when it was serving pages, you know, you can imagine every one of these, you know, if I don't know what they were using on the stack side, but, mm -hmm. you know, figure every, every thread that's spinning up for people, depending on what kind of memory system they were using or whatever, you know, you're probably using three, four, five megs per, you know, yeah. spread that out across 1,100 people. You know, they had pages that were taking anywhere from eight to 10 seconds to load. Wow. Um, and, you know, may or may not completely load in that time. May, you know, parts may fail. Images may not come because each one of those is another request. Right. Uh, and so even for the people who were using it, their experience was so degraded that, it wasn't useful. You know, you can't, you know, what, what good is having a shopping cart if you can't check out kind of thing. Right. Wow. The, there was a, there's a lot of integrated stuff here. And I mentioned with CGI federal, you know, they, they had done state level sites, but those aren't representative of the kind of work that was needed to be done here. Cause they of course had registration systems, uh, insurance database systems, application systems, all of this stuff that has to tie in together for an end-to-end -end user experience. And mm -hmm. that was also part of the problem where they were failing with connections to some of these independent systems. Um, and that's, that's something, that's one of those things they, they did testing on it. And I've said the same thing about uh, Gutenberg and so I have several other folks that, you know, it's a forest for the trees sort of thing. Like, mm -hmm. Even if you test the individual things, if you aren't doing good end-to-end -end testing, it's possible to have something that passes every individual test but still fails right. when everything is put together. Um, <laughs> and the appearance is that that was one thing that they had a huge gap in, in test coverage was they didn't – sure, they stress-tested the website, yeah. but they didn't stress-test the inter connectivity between their services to make sure that not only can our website handle this, but can we handle all of the database connections, the API lookups and all of this stuff. Right. Um, and clearly they didn't. <laughs> that, but you know, that's, uh, that's a tricky thing to think about. I, I mean, to, um, I would expect for the size of that contract that they should have had people, on hand who would have thought ahead about things of that nature, especially seeing all of the, the coupling with the other services. But 
uh, it's still kind of a weird thing. Like, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of imagine your, your site is just working in a vacuum or at least being where you only have to worry about your own performance, not the performance of ancillary services. I would have loved to be able to be like, you know, a fly on the wall mm-hmm. kind of thing, sitting in one of those, uh, you know, the planning meetings, especially like in the, the two months or so leading up to launch. Yeah. Like I can only imagine the kind of panic that yeah. was probably there, and uh, particularly on the part of the developers. Because when you're a developer, you know, like, you know that something is not going to work right. Usually, uh, yeah. Or, or, I mean, you, especially at something like this, like, you're going to be aware that there is a limit to what it's going to be able to do or something like that. And you're going to see that truck coming, but... Uh, <laughs> and. This is another thing I don't want. I won't go too deep into because we'll save it for the second half. But you know, there was a hard deadline here. This wasn't a get it right and then release it. It was it has to be done by October first. Yeah. It is, you know, they there was a legally mandated uh, deadline there, and mm-hmm. it certainly would have been nice if they could have done it faster. I think that you know if they had, it would have given them some soft launch opportunity. Yeah. But they didn't, and. Yeah. When you have that kind of train coming at you as a developer, you see it. You know that this stuff is not going to go right. right. And I can only imagine the feeling in that room. <laughs> <laughs> because they know it's like we, we, we can't stop it. And very, I mean, I, yeah, I'll keep bringing up Gutenberg. Um, it feels very much like that idea of not having the power to say, you know what, we can't launch this yet, it's not going to be ready. Yeah. But but you can't. And that's the reality. I, I've made this kind of argument to people, too, about, you know, things like accessibility and stuff, that there's always that problem of the the real world, when you are in a job, working at a company or whatever, you know, sometimes it's just the way it is, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to get something done, and that sucks. But it is the reality of the way business works, and it's not unique to web development. You know, it happens in accounting. It happens in HR. It happens, you know, there are things that are happening that you just have to beat the drum to. uh, And you get better by figuring out how to time that tempo and rhythm. So it is worth, I think, pointing out, uh, at the end of the day, the site that launched, it wasn't an ugly site like it the, their problems were purely technical and that that will i i want to touch on that point i uh it's really easy to look at a site that has shitty design and when i say design i mean specifically aesthetics not ux it's easy to look at a site that is shitty design and in kind of infer from that that it's a bad site and it's also easy to look at a site that has really good design and incorrectly infer that it's a good site. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've seen, like, I've worked on sites before where, like, the design layer was being worked on independently of the development side. And so the other devs and I were working on the views and the backend stuff and everything. And it looks like shit. Like, it's, it's basically, if you can imagine a worse-looking version of Craigslist. Like, it would yeah. be, like, super basic. And then the designer's like, okay, 
we got the first run done and they'll like just slapped up the CSS and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, now the site's great. <laughs> and I would encourage folks, if you're listening to this episode, go back to the Wayback Machine. Um, in fact, I'll just throw a link in our show notes for it um, the, to like day one when this mm-hmm. thing opened and go go take a look at it. And it's like, if you were to look at this site and, and you're right, uh, I, I said their problems were purely technical. That's maybe unfair uh, because they did have usability problems as well mm-hmm. you know for the people who are getting in but design wise strictly look and feel yeah you know yeah you would look at it and you'd be like okay yeah it's not like flashy it's not going to win any awards or anything like that but right you know they they got there uh one of the funny things though about it is we you know talking about that train coming down the tracks yeah that, as you get that that deadline and you can see it uh some folks do what they do, which in this case, you know, they were tearing apart some of the code that mm-hmm. was running the site. And so they pulled some JavaScript files and things like that and found like placeholders that were still in ah. the code for like Gosh. notes or to do's or, you know, uh, wow. lorem ipsum type things like the The code had clearly not been scrubbed. Uh, yeah. And this is before like we aren't really using build processes or things like that at this stage of the game. So you know, that was still very early for any of that. Um, so this is stuff that somebody manually in their head had said, okay, we're going to make these notes so that my other developers see it. And then when, when we go live, we'll go back and take Mm -hmm. all this stuff out. But the time to go live came well before the opportunity to take it out. And and that's kind of a telling marker of how that process went and the opportunities that weren't there. And that's why I say like, as a developer, you know, you know, that stuff is still in that code. You you're not going to forget that you've left debug comments and things like that, you know, all over Probably. the place. Yeah. So it's, it's a shame and it, you know, it comes back to a lot of those developers, but really at the end of the day, this was a huge, just project management nightmare is really what it comes down to. You know, and it was other, an expensive one. Uh, the other part of that too, like, you know, the difference between like the design side and then the development side, you give management, design comps and uh you know you've basically given them like 80 percent of the work and that you know they have to do the css and everything and actually do the the page layouts but that's that's a a purely time problem you know there's not a lot of problems you're solving you're just grinding code but if you show someone a site that's like you know where you've been working on the back end the problems or how close you are to the finish line is not immediately apparent um, and so for management, especially, uh, you know, it's, it's easy for them to see differences in the design or like, uh, the progress of the design, but not as easy for, to see it in the development side. Yeah. So let's talk about one more piece of this puzzle, which is, I, I mentioned this was an expensive project management nightmare. You said the uh, previous ones were 135 million. The the med, yeah the the work that uh, CGI had done for Medicare okay. um, was clocked in at 135 million. Now I don't know what that is inclusive of. I'm gonna okay. I wanna just be fair about that. Like I don't know if that was. I doubt it was just web design. I'm sure there was systems integrations. There mm-hmm. may have been application development. I don't know. Um, yeah. For this and this is one of those things that like there isn't a there there isn't like a hard fast number like this is what it cost, but. There have been uh, some numbers thrown around as far as what Kathleen Sibelius had said mm-hmm. um, and 
what the uh, government accounting office and and those folks have put out. The basic estimate is that up to and through the initial launch, it was somewhere in the area of about 174 what? million dollars, and that has grown in scope over time, possibly as high as 319 million what? and maybe more. Holy shit! That's nearly twice. It's nearly doubled in size. It, uh, yeah, I mean, it it doubled in size for reasons. Wow. Um, I I think the thing that blows my mind here is trying to understand what that cost goes towards. Because yeah. I I get it. Like this is a big site, and it has to serve a lot of people and do important things. Mm-hmm. But if you're gonna tell me that the cost of that is $174 million, I've got to ask the question of who is getting raked over the coals here, and obviously mm-hmm. it's the taxpayers, and I'm not going to go into a, a political <laughs> rant on that, but it it is the, the idea that this was the most cost-effective way to make this happen is kind of feel like it's you know patently absurd is probably the phrase to put it. Well, you know, as someone that works on a government contract, um, you know, you have like the flat costs of licensing fees and technology and um, hosting fee or whatever else, you know, all the uh, DevOps stuff. But then you've got the the much bigger cost is almost certainly going to be the labor side, which is, you know, you're paying the salaries for all the developers and the salaries are, are not a function of the quality of what they're producing or anything. And it can't be. I'm not saying that that's a problem. You know, I think the way to put this into perspective even though we don't know how many folks you know in total were on this project but Mm -hmm. you know we're not talking about building an operating system we're not talking about microsoft or some company that's got a thousand developers that are all you know putting their hands into the pie Mm -hmm. you know even a large web project is going to max out let's say 20 people Mm -hmm. Between designers, developers, project managers, content writers, SEO, all this stuff, you could pay every single one of those people a million dollars for their work <laughs> and still have $150 million left over for all of your hardware needs and technical requirements yeah. and license. I mean, that that's the way I kind of look at this is if I could go out and hire 20 people and pay them a million dollars, I mean, I could literally hire the best web developer on the planet. Okay, so something to think about, and this isn't immediately obvious, but if you are a government contractor and you're getting a government contract, you're not the the money that you're securing for the contract isn't going isn't being applied directly to your contractors. Like let's say that you had twenty developers and each one of them was getting, we'll say a hundred thousand dollars a year or something. You know, it's not the contract isn't for two million dollars a year. Because you also have to have, you know, the profit that your contractor company is making and that profit. And then you also have like your own overhead costs of paying executive salaries and paying for other things that your revenues have to cover in addition to just paying for the people doing the work. Yeah. uh, And I mean, of course, that's that's always going to be true. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think the, the bottom line is. If anybody pays $174 million for anything, Yeah, it should work. 
I mean, that's that's really the most important piece of that statement. I mean, there's just no way you spend that kind of money and have a site break. I think anyone who's paying for anything deserves to be given a like functional product. Yeah. <laughs> like if you've agreed on a price. That's the real crime in all of this yeah. is that idea that, you know, after all of that, like if it had rolled out flawlessly and mm -hmm. worked end to end and then all the things, yeah, we might still be talking about how expensive it was, but at least we got the money's worth out of it. And, you know, we, you'd mentioned the, you know, basically doubled in cost uh, mm -hmm. in support time up to this, this estimated $319 million, million dollar number. Um, and most of that has come on the back of support and fixing and firefighting after the yeah. fact. And so that initial badness is what led to the explosion in additional costs to fix right. that. And so right. that's, that's the cost of building something badly. And in this so, case, I just, I can't ever imagine building something so badly that it would have these kind of numbers. So it's unbelievable. Did you, did you see the Martian or read it? I guess either one. Um, I saw it. I, I okay. want to read it. I can't find the book's really good. Of it. <laughs> uh, I think I've got it. Anyway, it's really good. The book is excellent. But you remember, uh, I guess, minor spoilers if you haven't seen it. Um, you remember when they're sending up the uh, the support like rocket with all the support food so that Watney can survive another two years or whatever on Mars? Right. And then the thing blows up. Yeah. But like the reason it blew up was because they had to, they had a hard deadline that got pushed forward. It was already untenable. And then in order to make the critical window they had to make um they had to like cut down on uh qa and testing and everything and then ultimately it happened to be like you know the the director of nasa he made a judgment call and he's like well in cases like these we only find problems uh, what 10 or 20 percent of the time so it's 80 percent likely to succeed it just happened to be that in this case it failed um i think that's a similar kind of thing with this they had a hard deadline and they and they were told you have to release it by this point and it just wasn't ready. And I, when I, when I worked in higher ed, we occasionally would get hard deadlines like that because of the academic cycle. And sometimes the stuff just isn't ready and you know, things take time to fix. I don't, I don't know what to, I don't know what to do about that other than maybe to tell management to understand that um, things take time. <laughs> <laughs> I've got advice for that, which is yeah. let's take a break. We'll come back in about 45 seconds, refill our glasses, and then we will discuss exactly what we can do about some gonna, of this stuff. We're going to solve it. We're going to solve it tonight. We're, yeah, we're going we're gonna to solve it in the next 30 minutes of this show. And yeah. um, while I'm out, let's, let's figure out how much of that $174 million we get for 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we're going to set a hard deadline for 30 minutes for us. And we're going to have a solution by the end of it. That's <laughs> that's the lesson. <laughs> Stick around. Okay. We'll be right back in just a few. The Drunken UX podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. Are you trying to build a case around an interactive map for your school, city, or business? NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. 
Their team of professional cartographers specialize in map illustrations and are ready to design a rendering to fit your exact needs. One Map serves all your users' devices with responsive maps that scale and blend in seamlessly with your website. Visit them online to request a demo at newcloud.com slash drunkenUX. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenUX. Okay, so I did the math, and I think that of that $174 million, we should get uh, approximately 1% of it. So we'll get $1.74 million, and yeah. uh, we'll, we'll put some of that back into the podcast. You can go on vacation, and uh, yeah. I'll take the rest. Uh, I think that's fair. Uh, that yeah, that'd be all right. That work for you. Um, so in yeah, I'll in, I'll let you know what my vacation is. Okay. <laughs> in uh, <laughs> looking up some of this information over the break, I also picked up another little uh juicy fact that just kind of blew my mind. Um, What's that? In fact, as I think about this, I'm not even entirely sure how this can be true, given <laughs> what we know. But supposedly, the website has 500 million lines of code that runs it what yeah yeah you tell me how i don't like i and i know that that's inclusive you know that it's we're talking about all the connectors all the database stuff all of the application server side stuff i have no doubt that that's all being included in that but even then obviously a lot of that is just libraries and things being included because there's no way that humans wrote 500 million lines of code for this project yeah. in the time it had. It's just... So it might be some doable. bloat. I mean, even so, it's running on PHP, by the way. I looked at the, the network traffic when it's coming in. It's just, I mean, how do you maintain that even? 500 million lines of code. How do you maintain something of that size and get test coverage on all of it? Right. <laughs> oh, my God. You know? Even if, even if half of it was from... What, what's the, even if three quarters of it was was from libraries and other things that were like third party code. That's still uh, 125 million lines of code. Yeah, I've never had to build a site that big. Um, I mean, obviously, I mean, I I kind of and now I kind of wonder what like the average size of one of my websites is. Um, even if you know you include something like all the WordPress code. So I mean, when we think about WordPress, just to give people some perspective. WordPress, as far as just a site tool, has under half a million lines of code. It's in the area of 419,000 lines. The, the Space Shuttle had 400,000 lines of code. Um, a bacteria, uh, the, the syphilis bacteria, has just over a million. They're calling it lines of code. I'm guessing they mean base pairs. Like, yeah. Um, Age of Empires Online has a little over a million firefox web browser has just shy of 10 million we're, we're still talking fractional numbers of 500 million that's the thing like what could all of that be possibly doing uh okay google all internet services two billion lines of code um a step below that is a car software of an average average modern high-end car has about really a hundred million. That's lines. interesting. So, yeah, so they basically got five cars worth, or uh, <laughs> what, like one percent of Google. So, getting <laughs> away from that exercise, as fun as it was, um, let's <laughs> let's talk about the important side of this. So, 
Oh, 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 wait, wait. Facebook. Facebook is 60 million. So that's they, they built 10 Facebooks. That's, yeah, that's basically. dumb. <laughs> and Facebook, and I mean, I only mentioned Facebook because, well, because it's here, but also because Facebook has how many concurrent users? You know, like, they, they, they're not choking on 1,100. <laughs> so, um, clearly, I mean, the lines of code isn't a good indicator for that, but like, uh, you know, Facebook managed to do it. <laughs> you know what lines of code is a good measure for, though? Is QA and testing. Uh-huh. Because every line of code is an opportunity for a bug. It's an yep. opportunity for a typo. It's something you have to test. So every line of code you add to something is a little bit more complexity that can break stuff. Yes. So, I mean, and for anybody that's wondering, healthcare.gov did get hacked in 2014. Um, it wasn't like a major data breach or, or anything like that as far as I know, but it was compromised. So yeah. when you start adding that complexity, that's that's the risk you run. Yeah. Um, so the, the big risk, and we've talked about the the cost and how part of that cost growth was the result of support. Um, Joanne Peters is uh, or was a spokeswoman for HHS. She had a comment at one point where she said, "Moving forward, the team is focused on diagnosing and fixing each tech issue as it is identified." <laughs> what? There's there's another name for that. <laughs> it's called firefighting. Right. And that is. Uh, even though it is sort of the norm in terms of how we deal with problems with websites, you know, you're always going to have to work that way. Um, that was the strategy at the time. And that is a really bad way to try to address 500 million lines of code that can be broken. Yeah. Um, because it means you are constantly running around playing whack-a-mole mm-hmm. instead of focusing on the entire experience and, trying to address like the holistic problems as far as performance and things like that go. You can only throw so many people at that kind of problem. You, you shouldn't. I think the, the key part there is that as it is identified, um, that it's okay to have that come up if it's like a thing here and there, but you should be knowing what those problems are before you go into production. Obviously we can't say build bug free code because mm-hmm. yeah, we, that, that's not a thing. <laughs> we can't do that. Um, but you do need to go in with that mentality of, Hey, we got, you know, Jim this week is going to take this sprint and do some bug whacking while the rest of us, you know, focus on, you know, memory consumption in our, you know, in the JavaScript stack or something like that, as far as whatever, that's a strategy, Mm -hmm. but they had so much to deal with that there was no other, you know, they couldn't tear the site down and rebuild it at that point. You had to kind of push it to be better. But it it leads to 174 million becoming 319 million. Right. Um, becoming, I just saw another number here as as I click around some of these notes, that um, it the entire cost has possibly reached as high as 1.7 billion. Oh, my God. Since, since inception. So <laughs> 10 times as big. Yeah, just to put that into perspective, how those costs grow over time. But there there needs to be strategy to how you go at something. And if you mm-hmm. know, like if you launch something and you know that there is a problem, then there needs to be sort of a, a stepping away period. Yeah. And here's what I would have told them. It's where you get your money's worth. <laughs> they had a deadline. 
and we'll talk about deadlines here in a second. But they they had this deadline they were marching towards, but it was still arbitrary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can be really unfortunate to have to go in and say we need to change the deadline, but they could have. It would have taken an act of Congress, like literally. Or, Or they could have adopted an actual Agile practice, figured out what the MVP was. How many features do you actually need on October 1st? You know, if you have, if you know, uh, if you identify like, okay, from October to November 1st, people are going to want to look up their healthcare things, but they don't have to actually sign up for stuff yet because they can't until November 1st. Then you can just make sure that you have performance uh, accuracy on, for those features that they actually need. Yeah, because the, the whole idea, and for folks that have never worked in Agile um, or, or worked with a team that way, part of the goal is to build the individual features completely and release those iteratively. So yeah. you would start with, okay, well, first thing we need is a place for a user to register. Mm-hmm. And so you would make the button, and then you would make the form that fills out to create the record. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you would save that record. You would So you go item by item, each each time you you grow that little bit then you would say okay yeah we we need a way to look up the marketplace mm-hmm. you know so you'd be like okay we need a a search form you know yeah. something um and you build that up to that level of mvp MV, mvp meaning minimum viable product by the way yeah most places you know you'll still have scope creep and things like that but the idea is to get you to that point of we hit MVP, and it is functional. Yeah. It should work through and through when you get there and do those baseline things, and then you can start iterating mm-hmm. more sprints. You're testing the whole way through. If something comes up and you get to that point where it's like, oh, yeah, there's a bug in X, you know, then you address it then. You take it to your people. You get stakeholder approval. You know, you make sure they're happy. You come back, and then you do the next thing, and you just keep working that cycle it looks like what they did was much more of this waterfall process which is just like you know the the planning leads to the design Mm -hmm. leads to the development leads to the testing leads to the release leads to maintenance right um but the problem with that is and there's one of the articles we have a link to i'm not sure which one it is so i can't tell you directly but one of them is going to talk about this and they they make the point that you know, when you work in Waterfall in particular, um, the testing phase isn't really a testing phase. No. Because when you test it and you find the broken things, it actually becomes a fixing phase. Yeah. And it happens so late in the process Yeah, that if you find something really bad, really like if they got to the testing phase and then we're like, okay, now we'll run Siege. And we'll throw, you know, 50,000 users at this thing. Oh, it's crashing. Or, now you have to figure out, do we have enough time left or, or to fix that problem? How, how many, I'm, you've probably encountered this before. Have you ever had an application that you've written where you approached it with a particular paradigm or model or something, and then you're actually executing it. And then when you're testing it early on, because you're smart. You realize like, oh, my assumptions about this were completely wrong and this isn't going to work. So then you can then refactor and reapproach it early on 
Well, it's still easy to do that. But imagine if you didn't discover that until you're in the testing phase at the end. (laughs) But And the same thing goes for, you know, exactly why you should be doing user testing the whole way through. Right. You know, to solve some of that. To know that, oh, the thing I'm building, because remember, it also had usability problems for people. Uh, They had trouble navigating the system, signing up, and doing all their work. Okay, now, regarding that, whether you're doing Agile or Waterfall, there is a discovery period in the beginning. How did they not anticipate the volume? I mean, I, I could have said, I mean, if they were like, oh, we think it'll have 10,000 concurrent users, and turns out they were off by, like, you know, it's 50K or whatever, I'll give them that. But 1,100? <laughs> I mean, this is, so. so here's the next part, which is, when you're doing your discovery, when you're building something, uh, particularly a tool that you know is going to have surge potential, you need to make sure that you are designing it for good horizontal scaling. Mm-hmm. It needs to be able to widen its base, mm-hmm. you know, spin up a couple more load balancers or whatever, you know, if you're using EC2 or DigitalOcean or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, in something like this, they probably did have to have physical hardware, so I'm sure there was probably some limitation there. But at the same time, you know that's going to happen. So you should be building that kind of scaling in because you know that right. 90% of the time it's going to be sitting there with very low volume and then you need to be able to turn the fire hose on. Right. That is a, That was a requirement. You know, There's no way that's a requirement that you don't know ahead of time on right. something like this. And even if you're building a small tool, this, it, this matters because, for instance... Um, I use DigitalOcean uh, to build my sites right now. Mm-hmm. I set up a droplet, and I'm setting up small droplets, like, you know, two gigs of memory. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not a whole lot to run a web server on, but it can be done with, you know, a little tweaking and stuff. It runs just fine. Yeah. Um, but I'm running, I think, three sites on one of those. Mm-hmm. And so I have, I've had to think about, okay, what happens when I post an article? You know, what happens when a new episode of the podcast goes up. Right. Uh, and knowing that if I am running lean, I need to know what my server's capability is and what I want to do about that so that if, if I surge, I can get that. You like used if to call the hug of death, the Reddit hug of yeah, death. Yeah, exactly where I was going. <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you got the slash dot effect. Yep. The, um, the, the Reddit hug. Reddit is a uh, news aggregator website. I mean, it's, it's not just news. It's all kinds of internet shit. But um, the hug of death is when something gets posted there and a lot of people are very interested in it in a very short amount of time, especially internet hugging. Um, and they're all loading your website and your website just can't handle that surge of traffic. And so it takes. Yeah. So it does like in this case, obviously the site was huge and that was a problem and they should have known. But that applies to you at a small scale, too, mm-hmm. because you'll always have to consider that whether that means you're adding caching mm-hmm. uh you know whether you use a cdn or a proxy to take care of that um whether you're built you build a service that literally can go up and be like well i need to spin up another server for the next hour yeah um and load balance that way um netflix has uh Net- a lot of services like that for video distribution they can bring up and shut down nodes as demand goes up and down and they also run i think we've talked about this before the chaos monkey that yeah. just it's just a program that lives in their server land and it just randomly kills and processes and the it they did a whole uh 
talk at a conference about about the chaos monkey and um but it's it's constantly running in production so it's they're always creating like that kind of nightmare scenario where stuff is dying but in your because that's running they have to design for redundancy and that's why you could watch whatever it is show you likes to watch and i think you could make a really good argument that government services should be running that Mm -hmm. because like when we think about something like healthcare.gov in particular yeah that period from what is it november 1st to december 1st or whatever it is or december 31st when it closes i mean and it just like irs you know yeah brought up the irs earlier their period there in the middle of april that needs to be bulletproof for them because they are providing a service that is incredibly important right and if i can't do the thing because your stuff failed a lot of the times you know that that's my fault actually as the user didn't they have an outage on april 15th this year yes and i wasn't it surge related um i don't know i don't okay. remember the details at this point i did, didn't think ahead to that but I remember tax day um, got bumped I, the 16th i i think it was i think it was related specifically to e-filing like okay place you know like i use tax act or people who are using the um hrnr blocker or any of these that right um that e-file your stuff i think it was that that part of it that went down but yeah and that was a huge deal because that was what everybody's like well i'm trying to get my stuff in early but you know you're not going to give me credit for that if your stuff was broken because that's just the way government works um and so you say did they add an extra day to it they did they they uh extended the tax day became the 16th instead okay because of the outage and so let's yeah let's talk deadlines on this Mm -hmm. so they had a a hard deadline it had to launch october 1st 2013 and i get that and i think my first point is there are a few deadlines that have to be written in stone um and i know that i said that earlier you know this that would have taken an act of congress literally Mm -hmm. to change this but that could have been done Um, well, and maybe. I would argue it sh- – well, I mean, I, I here's what I would have said. I think it's arguable that it should have been part of the original legislation, that mm-hmm. the, the goal was October 1st, 2013, whatever, but there needed to be an escape hatch of some kind there yeah. or something. Like, it's never good on something like this to impose that kind of deadline because you get exactly what happened, basically. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that – let's just – call that what it is Um, well like deadlines exist independently of what the project is the the problem is that again i'm going to go back to the mvp thing had they identified these are the features we need to have on this date it may not be the full feature set there may there may be parts of the of the project that don't need to be feature complete on that date and so you can prioritize and refocus your efforts on just the ones that have to be like have 100 percent uptime when that happens. Um, and, and I think that that is something that agile is better with than waterfall approach. Cause yeah. water, waterfall wants to have the whole painting done and agile. Is Wa- just like, waterfall oh. is, you know, it, it's trying to hit a target a mile away. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're trying to aim at a target and launch a project at it and hope you hit it or hit in front of it, I guess, technically. But yeah. You, if you realize you are overshooting or something, there's not a good way to change the trajectory at that point. Whereas <laughs> you have to move the target. <laughs> with, with with Agile, the whole thing is like, if if you're doing something in Agile, even on a big project, in theory, you will know 
way ahead of time that you're going to miss a deadline or, or something's going to go wrong. Right. Um, yeah. And that gives you time to figure out what you want to do about it. Right. In this case, like you say, because you can't complete the project till the whole thing is done with Waterfall, you you run into this challenge of, okay, but now we're at the end of the cycle. Mm-hmm. What do we do? Agile, like actual Agile, also has built-in things when you're when you're finishing those uh, sprints. I, okay, um, I'm gonna dial back a second. So I worked in higher ed on a project that was like I'm making air quotes Agile managed, and but what it really was was more like what it sounds like this was, which is a waterfall project that's divided up into sprints, and then the sprints are basically just you have a, a weekly stand-up meeting where you discuss what you're going to work on that week. Um, but if you're doing actual agile, when you, f- you, you decide what is going to be in this iteration. And then when those features are complete, whatever it is you're working on, the, the state of that you're intending to get to, those can then be tested and then you're testing them. And then you can say like, this does or doesn't work. And you're testing a much smaller set. So when things go awry, you know, you have a better sense of like, well, it's probably something in one of these uh, changes that we made. And it's important, I think, for project managers and stakeholders to think about deadlines in some of these terms, too, because, I mean, obviously, we have to have deadlines, there, and there are a million reasons why that's true, um, but, you know, it's things have to release. We get that. Um, but I think there needs to be sort of a softer approach to some of that that, let's use, go back to WordPress, right? Gutenberg's coming. Mm-hmm. And one of the big complaints about the accessibility stuff right now is that they canceled their external audit uh, search because <laughs> they said it, it. no matter what that audit found, it would not change the release date. <sighs> and that's problematic because that audit could find a showstopper, right? It could find a bug that needs to delay the project. Well, it's only a showstopper if you stop the show. <laughs> yeah. But that can happen at any point. And so I think there needs to be sort of a soft touch with some deadlines that it's like if, you know, if there isn't enough time, there just isn't enough time. Mm-hmm. Um, or if a deadline is coming up and you aren't ready, then you need to be prepared to do the, do another thing. Um, in this case, if you know this train is coming down the tracks and you're looking at your code and you're like, we haven't even taken debug comments out yet. <laughs> you know, this stuff breaks when it gets hammered with a, a, a traffic surge. Then it's time to figure out what do we do instead? You know, maybe or, maybe you put a message on the site. Maybe, I yes. don't know. But you do something at that point. If you know the feature isn't complete yet, then... Well, don't deploy it to production, but put up whatever you have that is complete and then just indicate this, this feature will be here soon or some, or something like that. If it, if it's, if the user is going to be expecting it, then indicate that you are aware the user is expecting it, but don't give them something broken. Yeah. (laughs) Or at least something you haven't tested. Giving them something broken and not telling them to expect, you know, sadness is kind of like, Going to a car lot and buying a car and finding out like it was a Katrina car or something like that, you know, that they didn't tell you. Like you are intentionally setting them up for failure. Yeah. And that you want to talk about something that will piss off a user faster than anything. You know, setting them up for failure is mm-hmm. a, a prime way to do it. Uh, there's a, a 
article I'll, I'll attach to from right after the launch from Nielsen Norman. Um, and they oh did a little thing. You know, they looked at a bunch of the usability guidelines that weren't followed mm-hmm. in terms of what would make a good user experience. And so there's a lot of stuff there that shows, like, you know, all of these things are going to piss off the user. Yeah. And so, and they're not like weird off the beaten path kind of things. Like these are conventions that users expect and things that even in 2013, we knew, you know, was good user behavior, good user experience. Um, and were things that could have been built in. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously because they literally wrote the article three weeks after the thing launched. So, <laughs> well, if, if you, if you have, if you're on a waterfall project and you discover, let's say that you are a responsible person who is unfortunately on a waterfall project and you discover there's obvious usability issues with this thing that we just built. Um, we need to address those. How do you work that into, do you just say this is a blocker or, I mean, how, how do you work that into the plan? Cause the, you know, the, the, the Gantt chart or whatever, it's not going to have, um, well, we're going to address the usability of projects at each iteration. Cause they're not think- doing iterations. I think you just you have to have an advocate, right? Yeah. It it has to be a part of your team and a part of your philosophy that you are going to include user experience design and testing in your process. Mm-hmm. Um it's not something you can really bolt on. Right. It's not something you do after the fact. Um I mean, you can, obviously, but it's it's it, problematic. It sounds like you kind of almost have to have uh some like fuzzy space built into whatever plan. So when you're doing resource allocation, you're not saying like we're going to take 100% of the you know work hours that we have available and count on those to be available you have to, you'd have to say well 80% of these will be working on pushing the project forward and then 20% is for accommodating um stoppages or other things that come up yeah i'm just and, spitballing those numbers i don't know if that's the good ratio or not <laughs> and i i think one of the important things there too is that's not something you have to make up mm-hmm. at least if you're good right um if you're working with a team of people that you trust and and you know you've been working with for a long time even when you know you need to leave fuzzy space you know it's it's not so much fuzzy space as it is like a pair of jeans that have that little uh stretchy part oh, right. in the middle so that <laughs> when when my fat ass tries to put them on <laughs> in the morning uh or after after a dinner, you and so know? you can deal with with surge sizing on Thanksgiving. You yeah exactly. <laughs> it's but you you don't need like you don't need six inches of that. You only need right. a little bit. And if you ha- are used to working, you know you'll get a feel. You know it's it's a very kind of just it's a temperature kind of thing. You know you need a couple hours, you know, for a given type of work. Yeah, to plan for whatever testing or changes or, or things you need to that point, kind of one of, one of the other problems they had was I used the word earlier scope creep. Mm-hmm. And this is something that if you've worked with any kind of, you know, if you're a freelancer in particular who just works with people on the side, you've probably ran into, Oh, but could we move this over here? Right. Oh yeah. And by the way, I need the date to show up on X mm-hmm. six months into a project. You realize you should have been done two months ago, you know? Right. Um, but you've allowed these little things to keep happening. And that was happening here. Um, QSSI, one of the, the testing company that was brought in, um, one of their guys, and Andrew Slavit, Slavit, um, 
Slate Slavit. I don't Slavit. know. Um, he mentioned it appears that one of the reasons for the high concurrent volume at the registration system was a late decision requiring co- consumers to register for an account before they could browse for insurance that is products. Such a terrible like why don't don't do that. So yeah, so what's what you're seeing here is somebody decided oh they need they should have their account before they're allowed to browse and mm-hmm. so late in the game they made a change that they weren't able to fully user test, they weren't able to you know ask people about. It changed the dynamic of where load was sent within mm-hmm. the system um and broke things and in fact this exact thing is one of the bullet points that uh, nielsen norman group yeah. released in their article that's not surprising. that they're like there's no reason you should ask a user to create an account in order to browse right browsing is not something that you need to know who the user is at that point they are browsing they aren't buying you don't need to ask for that information because you don't need it um you could make it possible certainly if you if they want to give the information over there mm-hmm. but you don't need it um but those last minute changes right it comes back to mvp it comes back to testing it comes back to agile if yeah. if somebody wants to change something that's great put in a ticket and deal with it the right way do discovery on it figure out why what's the user story what is the user story that says oh but we need to make them register first like you need to set all that stuff up and then you will put it into a future sprint where it will get included as a new feature release somewhere after the fact. Because as far as MVP goes, clearly that is not something that should or would need to be required in order to complete the user task. So that's, you know, one of the, that's a prime example of this specific late game change was part of exactly what led to it being broken. Yeah. That could be avoided, and it's easy to avoid. I want to go one more place, because I want to give some credit to some folks. There is a new department. I guess they're kind of a department. I don't know if that's maybe the right way to put it. USDS? The, the USDS. Yeah. Um, the United States States Digital Services. Um, so this is a group, and my understanding of it is they're, they've got like their, their core team... But then they have this whole big staple of developers and designers and user experience people that come in that do like they're they're it's almost like Peace Corps kind of work. Like these are yeah. folks who come in and they'll be there they'll they'll put in a term of a year or something like that. Right. Um and I mean they get paid and all of that too, but the as it is structured, the the service is designed to help people get experience, but you mm-hmm. know, improve government uh, services and, and user experience. They were just coming into being at this point in time, and they were also part of the team that came in after everything went to shit and helped get it put together right. Um, And they have gone on to do, they've been working with uh, VA has been a big, uh, a big piece of what they've been doing lately. They they're going around government services and they can basically say, Oh yeah, we we can give you a team of five people for X long. They're kind of like their own little agency, you know, like a design <laughs> agency, but for government. Um, and they are working with contractors and with the branches, different or different departments of government, to elevate and improve the user experience design across the board. And they're doing a relatively good job at that. I've talked with some folks at it, and they really are like 
they're going at it. I I looked at the um, I looked at the guidelines they had. It's really good. I, I mean, yeah. it's like it's legitimately good recommendations. And having that be a um, kind of a common language, I guess, like a, a common scheme that people yeah. can use on government websites. I, I actually check with my team to see if we're using this because it's I like it a lot and it this is very clean and it's consistent and uh it'll make it easier for people who are have learned one government service on the web to use other ones so let's on what aaron is referring to is the united states web design system and we will include a link to it uh, in the show notes definitely go check it out it is on github you can go pull the entire system it is it's a design system. It's just like if you were to go look up something like material design or, or something like that. It's It seems kind of like uh, like how Bootstrap is. If you use the default Bootstrap thing and you have like BTN primary, BTN secondary, and so on. And there's like there's pre-made colors and you just know – you know that those styles are going to be defined it, and it's how a to be library. used. Yeah. Yes. That's what it is. Um, and so the USDS is the part of the team along with – a bunch of folks they collaborated with, they put this together. And this kind of, it's sort of a side effect, I think, of the healthcare.gov uh, uh, fixing and rebuilding and whatnot, mm -hmm. that they have produced this exactly for what you were saying. You know, it's it's sort of designed to help government use a common language across their websites. And I think that particularly if you are somebody who uses one government service, it's probably likely that you will use several yeah. Um. And over, you know, the course of a couple years, two, three years, you're likely to use at least something. Mm -hmm. And if we can get government services conforming to this across the board, it unifies that user experience across right. all of those sites. So you begin to know what you're in for. You know what something's going to look like. You know, you know what the expectation is. You are creating a consistent experience. That's really important, I think, for something like government that is huge. Um, you know, one big piece of the web design system is U USWDS. I don't, I need a better way to say that. Um, <laughs> it also includes things like accessibility. Yeah. Uh, and we know, you know, government, government's biggest problem. It's true in higher ed. <laughs> it's true in, yeah. The one, the one biggest the problem. The one problem. Is particularly in web. And I don't mean to say this as a slight against anybody, because I know there are great people doing good work uh, for all of these places, but the reality is government can't compete for the really top-tier web folks a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. Those people go off, they get an offer from a private company that pays twice as much, they go. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just the way it works. Government's not competing for those people, and they have, and people have trouble with the bureaucracy, they have trouble with, you know... Any number of things. I, I had a great conversation with uh, somebody that works for uh, the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. They're a school, but they are basically bound by the same like security and software standards as a battleship. Right. Which is insane. <laughs> uh, and it takes a special person to be like, I can put up with that for a long <laughs> time. Um, and so things like accessibility, things like usability are often forgotten or not treated with the amount of respect that the process would otherwise demand. 
Um, and so this gives you a way to kind of get that stuff worked in a little bit more easily, I think, that things are already, you know, they've already tested components, they've already accounted for accessibility, they've already yeah. included the controls and, and the turnkey. design. Turn so, key. yeah, it gives you something turnkey and it lets you kind of uh, account for that lack in some of those areas. Because let's face it, there are government websites that to this day are just <laughs> bad. If you've <laughs> If you know anybody who is a a serviceman or a servicewoman, um, ask them how their experience is with some of the portals that they have to use. Oh my gosh! Uh, and that's something USDS is uh, actively working on as well with uh, the army and and uh, different branches of the military. But I mean, there's just a lot of bad that's out there still. Uh, well, it's, it's going to take a long time to fix. So I, the other thing I like about design systems is that they it it pre-makes a bunch of decisions so that you don't have to make them or someone else doesn't have to do what they think you should do. It's just like, this discussion is settled. We've all decided it's this end of story. And then you right. just say like, okay. And the nice thing is that since government websites don't have to compete, you know, with a visual or anything, any kind of aesthetic style that you might want to have input on those decisions about, they just have to have something that's functional. You don't need anything fancy. You just need, you can focus completely on, does this look reasonably nice? And more importantly, does it do what it's supposed to do in a way that is accessible, as you were saying earlier? And uh, this does a great job of that. Yeah. People come to a government website to do something. Right. Always. Yeah. And so, no, you know, giving them an experience that lets them get in, do the thing they're there to do, and get out with, minimum disruption to their day that's the goal i mean that's mm -hmm. the key and by using a design system like this across all of those platforms then you make that easier across the board because again they they know what to expect at that point. right yes uh so check, i would do, I absolutely do check it out really yeah go go look at it go see what they're doing um it's if nothing else it's a great example if you're just trying on your own to build yeah. a pattern library or, or a style guide. Yeah, um, you could certainly, you could adopt this if you, like, if you really, if you're ambivalent about the design for whatever reason, or just maybe you internally, um, I don't think there's any reason you couldn't adopt this, right? Public yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> check it out on GitHub and run with it. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm almost positive that for the most part, healthcare.gov does now use that framework. I, I, should have maybe thought ahead and, and confirmed that, so I, I can't say it with <laughs> 100%, but it is uh, it does definitely appear visually to be using it. So uh, it's something that I think is is worth a look and, and worth playing with and consider, you know, how, a, how design systems speed things up. They, like you say, they remove questions. You know, you don't have to have that conversation of what should this form look like. You know what the form should look like because it's already patterned out for you. Um, there's a whole lot that that can do for a project. It also, you know, it eliminates um, potential hurdles. Mm -hmm. You know, if you know, and if you've done enough design, you know, like rapid prototyping, you know, you can get into some of that. And that, when you get into Agile, becomes really useful. If you can <laughs> jump into a swarm with a stakeholder and be talking about a feature and mock it up real fast because you've got a design system, you just throw a couple classes on something and you can be like, is this what you were wanting? Does this look basically like what you're after? And they're able to give you that feedback cycle. Because Agile is all about feedback. It's like it's yeah. this constant feedback cycle with 
between designers, developers, stakeholders, um, and users. And so design systems make all of that easier because yeah. you just know, you know, you're all speaking again. I, I like the way you put it. You're speaking the same language then. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it reduces the urge of some a stakeholder to come in and say, yeah, but I want this to be purple. You know, the other nice thing, too, is that uh, for the, the contractor standpoint, if you work on one project that uses this design system, the next time you work on a project that also uses the design system, you already know all the classes and the styles and how everything is supposed to look because it's the same. So that reduces the amount of developer hours you have to spend on those issues, which should reduce cost. Maybe <laughs> design systems won't fix server problems. No, it, it won't solve the the issue of five hundred million lines of code necessarily. But oh. um, you know, those are those are challenges for another world. Um, I'd be interested to know if they've reduced some of that. Like, is it four hundred million now? I don't know. Uh, Do you, as an as an aside, when you talk about the number of lines of code an application has. Should you include third-party libraries? I don't think you should. Uh, I wouldn't. Yeah. Because that's not the system's code, basically. Right. And you have you have no control over that either. But it's also, I think, probably a, 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 how you count lines of code usually is just by, you know, looking in GitHub or something like that. So oh, if it's maybe. in there, you know, you, you'd have to go in and, like, exclude directories or something. I don't know. Uh, you could just do... You could just... Uh, like WC dash L uh, star or whatever. I don't know. Well, with that, <laughs> stick with us. We'll be right back after these short messages. The Drunken UX podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry leading interactive map provider who has been building location based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenUX. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenUX. Thanks for listening this evening where we talked about project management and a lot about Agile. And a little bit about government, but without bit. being without being political. Mostly. Hope you found something useful there. Yeah. Hey, and we did. We did a good job of not being political. I'm very proud <laughs> of us for that. Um, hope you found something useful there, and that you can apply it to one of your projects. Or, or November first, open enrollment. Open enrollment starts November first. Go check it out. If nothing else, go look at the how different the site is from five years <laughs> ago. Uh, you can go follow us on Twitter or Facebook or a Pod Chaser. At Pod slash drunken UX. Yeah, it's just a, it's another podcast platform, but you can drop us a rating or a review uh, if you feel so inclined. We certainly would appreciate it. It only takes a minute and helps us out. Uh, you can also check us out on Instagram at drunken UX podcast, where we will post pictures of our drinks and background stuff and show announcements and all that too. So 
it's a good place to, to check us out. Or uh, come chat with us. We are on Slack. You just go to drunkenux.com slash Slack, and you can catch us over there. Uh, let's see. What else do we got, Aaron? I think, Wednesday. I think we're, Wednesday. Wednesday. RTO. Wednesday is right? our RTO. Uh, we got real-time overview with News Roundup every Wednesday, except the one in the middle of the month where we do a new episode of Build Process. You know what I, I'd like to know as a parting message? Michael and I have been talking about uh, what to do for our last episode of this year. So like the, the season finale for this year. And I had said that I thought we should release it on like either the 23rd or the 24th of December. So that when people are traveling or cooking or doing other things, if they're so inclined, they could listen to that episode. But I, I don't know if that's actually what people would do. So I would, I my, my ask Aaron for this week or answer Aaron uh, is I would like to know were, were we to release a season finale uh, for this year sometime in like mid to late December when would it be when would you be most likely to listen to it that's what I'd like to know maybe we'll throw a little poll or something up in the show yeah notes. might be able to make that happen I like that and with that ladies and gentlemen I hope you enjoyed the show and I only have one last thing I think that I need to say, and that is, as always, do keep your personas close and your users closer.